is a wonderful theme and one that none of us is really the least bit qualified uh, to speak about. I'm very aware of that. Imagine uh, the wisdom of God. What can I say about that? Well, I need to stick very closely to what is revealed by God himself in his word about his wisdom. Uh, try to understand uh, what he has made known, try to apply it to our lives. But I'm aware right at the beginning that there are depths of his wisdom that we will, that we will never completely uh, fathom. Uh, God, is, God is infinite and we are finite. And even in our glorified state, we will be finite. And God will be infinite. And we will continue to learn about uh, Him, and all that He is, all of His perfections, forever and forever and forever. And there will never come a time when we say, well, uh, that's done. <laughs> uh, we, we, can, we can close off this area of investigation. It's time to move on to something new. The, the glory of God will be ever new and uh, we will continue to grow in our understanding of it, uh, increase in our love for him and in our desire to uh, know him and serve him. We'll be, we'll be satisfied by him and yet satisfied in such a way that we want more, an endless cycle of, of desiring more and experiencing satisfaction only to desire more and to, again, experience more satisfaction. Please take your Bibles and turn to uh, Psalm 104, and I will read the whole psalm. I was kind of fiddling around with my Bible there at the back while we were singing, trying to decide, now what did we read on the wisdom of God? There's Psalm 104, there's Colossians 1, Colossians 2, 1 Corinthians 1, there are many passages that, that come to mind, but uh, I've decided upon Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messenger, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil that makes their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. 
The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The wild mountains belong, or the high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the thyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey. They seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. And they return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Tonight we're going to look at one of the so-called communicable attributes of God. For those of you who were here on Sunday morning, uh, I mentioned that uh, theologians always like to divide things into categories. It helps them, helps them understand what is going on. And we say that. We say that theology is a second-order language. Uh, the Bible would be the first order. The theology is the second order. A theology is not necessary because the Bible is inadequate. Theology is necessary because we're so dull and it's so difficult for us to to understand what God has said, and so we've got to break it down into bite-sized pieces. We have to study it, we have to analyze it, we have to restate it in our own words, um, organize it in terms of categories in order that we can take in uh, the riches of God's truth, God's revelation. And so uh, numerous categories have been devised. And uh, when it comes to the perfections or attributes of God, uh, one such category that I've always found helpful has been the idea of, of God having incommunicable and communicable attributes. Incommunicable ones are ones that he doesn't share with us uh, in any kind of direct way. They're those attributes that really get to the heart of, of his godness. And communicable ones are ones that he does share with us to some degree. We've got to qualify it in that way. We have to nuance it because uh, we're going to look at a communicable attribute, the wisdom of God, and yet we're aware immediately that although God has wisdom and we have wisdom, uh, his wisdom is quite different from ours. Uh, his wisdom is more profound. His wisdom is, is vast. His wisdom is absolute. Ours is, is uh, 
is wisdom, but it is human wisdom and uh, subject to all of the liabilities of human wisdom. And to boot, of course, we're sinful human beings, and so we suffer from the noetic effects of sin. Sin has dulled our minds and our hearts and our affections and so forth, and so we labor under those liabilities. Uh, but even when we're finally set free from that, we, we will retain our, our human uh, limitations, glorified, yes, but human beings, and uh, we will have wisdom. Uh, it, it won't be tainted by sin, but uh, still, it's, it, it's not quite the same as God's. It's similar to God's, but, but, but different. But still, we, we call wisdom one of the communicable attributes because, uh, you know, he has it, and to some degree, he shares it with us. In fact, we're going to see at the very end that if we lack wisdom, we're told to ask of God. We're told to go to God and to ask him to give us out of his, uh, out of his abundance uh, what we need to make sense of our lives and to uh, move forward by his grace. Now this attribute of wisdom is closely connected to omniscience, uh, which is why I chose to uh, speak on omniscience on Sunday morning because I knew there would be some of you uh, here um, tonight. Uh, just to review very quickly, uh, God's omniscience uh, means that he knows all things. And we saw that he knows all things perfectly. Uh, he knows all things that, that um, uh, happen in time. Uh, he knows all things that will happen. He knows all things down to the smallest details. In fact, we began by saying, if I recall, that uh, God knows himself perfectly. He then knows all reality as it is. He knows what will be. He knows everything down to the smallest details. And then we really kind of pushed the envelope and we talked about the fact that God not only knows what is and what will be down to the smallest details but he knows what would have been and could have been under other circumstances had he chosen to ordain it which is a very profound concept he knows what Tyre and Sidon would have done had the uh, works that Jesus did in Chorazan and Bethsaida have been done there. He knows what, what Sodom would have done if what was done in Capernaum had been done there. Uh, his, his, uh, his knowledge of all things is, is uh, well, it's vast. It is, is, is perfect. It's complete. He, he knows all things. And then we said that he knows everything immediately. He said he doesn't, he doesn't have to Google it. That's what that means, right? Uh, God, God has access to all information. It's, it's, it's there. It's all, he knows you know, everything about the universe and how all the facts in the universe are interrelated. And all of that stuff is, is just immediately known to him. And he knows it forever. He, he, he doesn't suffer from dementia or from Alzheimer's. Uh, he, he doesn't lose his grasp upon reality. As the ages roll on, he knows all things. And as I said on Sunday morning, I, my own experience, I have a father who's, you know, suffering, you know, the ravages of old age in that way with his um, ability to recall things. And he can recall things from a long time ago, but not what you told him a minute ago. And, um, and, and you know, when, you, when you know that, and then you come back to God and you say, oh, but he knows all things. He never forgets. We dealt with some objections just quickly. We, we said, well, you know, he, he doesn't remember our sins, but that's not as though he, he uh, has had shock treatment and he can't remember them. It, it's because 
he has those are covered in the blood of christ and he knows about them but they're no longer a barrier in our relationship with him so he he forgets them in that sense some things never entered his mind like child sacrifice but that that's just a way of saying it was never part of his perceptive will it was never something that he required of his people he, he never told them to do that and uh, and then we mentioned that God's knowledge of all things in no way takes away from human responsibility or human freedom we are free to do what we want of course that's our big problem isn't it free to do what we want the trouble is that we want all the wrong things our free our free will will damn us unless God comes in and changes our wanter but you see he's able to do that and uh, and, and yet his knowledge of all things uh, in no way in no way takes away our freedom our responsibility he, he knows a word before it is on our tongue he knows it completely and yet it is our word it is on our tongue and we're responsible for thinking it and for saying it and he's not twisting our arms behind our backs holding a gun to our heads. We do what we do for, for our own reasons. But he knows it. Of course, I could go further and I could say he knows it because he ordains it. And, and we're then into deep mysteries, aren't we? You know, talking about them, being able to describe them. This is one of the mistakes that we can make in academia. We can think that because we can describe a phenomenon that therefore we, we understand it. And we can describe a lot of things and really not have a clue what we're talking about. And, and, and especially in these areas. How can God know all things and yet I remain free and responsible? How can he ordain all? I don't know. Don't have the foggiest. I have trouble sleeping at night. I can think about that for a while. <laughs> but there's just, these, are, these are the mysteries. But they're revealed to us uh, in God's word. Now, uh, God's, uh, God's omniscience is, is amazing. But I'm going to suggest to you tonight that, in a sense, God's wisdom is even more profound than his knowledge. God's wisdom is more profound than his knowledge because God's wisdom has to do with his governance of the world in general and the direction of our lives in particular. So omniscience has all kinds of implications for us personally. Remember we said, you know, it means don't bother running from God. There's no place to run. The safest, uh, the, the safest thing, the wisest thing that we can ever do is to run to God and surrender to him because you, you can't escape the Lord. He's, he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's all-powerful. You, you better go to him. Resistance is futile, uh, to quote somebody else. Um, but that's you know, still out there, uh, removed from our everyday experience to some degree. But wisdom, to, to, to say that God is wise, to say that he's all wise, and, and to say that knowing uh, other things about God, like, like that he's, you know, transcendently and gloriously sovereign, that he is all powerful, that he is all present, that he is on, and, and wise, to say that is to if you think about it, really raise some uh, difficult issues. Well, what do we mean by the wisdom of God? Well, a very simple uh, definition. I think Wayne Grudem defines it something like this. Uh, God knows the best goal for the world and for all of us as individuals living in the world. And the best way 
to get us there. Now, I'm sure I could come up with a, you know, a fancier sounding definition of wisdom, but that'll work for us. God knows the best goal. He knows what's best for the world, for, for everybody in it. We could say he knows what's best for the whole created universe, for everything that he's made. He knows what's best. And he knows the best way to get us there. But now, as soon as I start talking like that, if you're following me, you think, now, wait a minute. Now, of course, I, you know, I'm largely preaching to the choir, so to speak. Right? I have a lot of troubles here, but I go on a university campus. I go out in the street somewhere. I go into a coffee shop. I start saying, God is all wise. God is... In, uh, is, is, is sovereign over everything that happens. God is all-powerful. They go, what? How can you say that? Are you, are you living in the same world? Have you, have you taken a good look around? Or do you know anything about my life? You know, when you're in a counseling situation, or you're visiting someone in, in prison, or you're there in a hospital. Do you, do you know anything about my life? How in the world can you talk to me about an all-wise God who's sovereign and who's, who's uh, all-knowing and who's all-powerful to boot. How can you do that? Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's fill in some biblical data. The Bible asserts the wisdom of God in a general way. Uh, it is mentioned twice by Job, for instance, in in Job 9, verse 4, and in uh, Job 12, verses 13 and 14. In Job 9, verse 4, uh, Job says his wisdom, God's wisdom, is, is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? The proper answer is <laughs> nobody. A little later, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those he imprisons cannot be released. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans 16 verse 20 says, 27 says, To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have these assertions, and these are just three of God's wisdom from Job and then from Romans chapter 16. Beyond these general assertions, the Bible uh, speaks about the wisdom of God being manifest in, in a number of areas. I'll give you the three areas, and I'll, I'll just sort of let you in on, on a kind of argument I'm having with myself as to in which order to present these. The first one is, is, is fairly simple and straightforward. Uh, God's wisdom is seen in the creation and in the preservation of the world. That, that's probably where we'd want to start, just because of the way the biblical story uh, line proceeds. But here's where I'm having a little bit of difficulty. Uh, God's wisdom is also seen, well, it's ultimately seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? In the person of Christ, in the, in the work of Christ. Uh, but God's wisdom is seen in the way he directs the lives of his people in the way he governs our lives, in the way he leads us. Now, now here's my dilemma. Do I, do I structure the message so that I, I go from creation to, let's say, providence, thinking about the way God uh, guides his people, to 
christ his person his work in kind of move you know to a climax like that there'd be nothing wrong with doing that it would uh you know just from a uh, homiletical point of view lots to be gained you're going step by step and you're coming of course to the great climax in jesus christ what can be more wonderful than that but there's something to be said for talking about creation talking about salvation and then returning to God's providential um, working in our lives because it more closely follows kind of how we experience God's wisdom personally. That is, we, you know, look around once we become believers, we look around and we, we see it there in the creation. Of course, it's there for everybody to see, but, but men suppress the truth in unrighteousness and unrighteousness and refuse to, uh, to believe what God has made known about himself, according to, you know, Paul in the last part of Romans 1. Of course, it, there's nothing greater than, than seeing God's wisdom in Jesus Christ. But that's kind of what we experience next. But and there's this third element though that really comes uh, as you know as the as the next step or the third step this this God's governing of the lives of His people. That's how we frequently experience it. So that's I think what I'm going to do. My, my notes are written the other way around, but as I was thinking about it, I thought no, I don't like that. I'm going to I'm going to switch this around. And I and as because we've heard a lot about Christ, and of course you can never talk enough about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but I, I want to, and I want to say something about him as the, you know, the ultimate expression of God's wisdom. But then I do want to, you know, to bring this down to the practical level. I want to say, okay, but my life, your lives, God is wise. Well, that's, that's sometimes hard for me to understand, you know. It's hard for me to, it's hard for me to acknowledge. I, I might even, I might even feel um, a little rebellion rising up within me. So you're the one that's responsible for this, are you? <laughs> um, you're to blame. This is your plan. This is your world. This is, this is your wisdom? No, I'm not trying to be unspiritual. It, it seems to me that Christians are often super spiritual and suppress uh, in a, an unhealthy way some of these things they feel. And I don't think we should because I think we have a model like in the book of Psalms where we have the psalmist being brutally honest before God. Why not be brutally honest before God? Because he knows all things anyway. And I think it would be, we might need less therapy and less prescription drugs and a whole lot of other things if we just be honest with God. Say, you know, I, I've got some problems with, <laughs> with how things are going. And we don't, want to, we don't want to leave it there. But I don't think it's wrong for us to acknowledge that. I mean, there are things that happen in our lives that are hard for us to swallow. And it doesn't necessarily do us any good just to put a silly smile on our face and say, oh, you know, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. <laughs> but underneath my smile, I'm really annoyed. Uh, much better to say, okay, let's, let's face this head on. Let's be, let's be honest. Let's be authentic. Now, that's what the world needs to, to see to some degree. They need to see some honesty. They don't need our silly smiles and our, uh, oh, everything's wonderful. You know, as if we're on a valium-induced spiritual high, you know. No, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, I just, I just, you know, <laughs> I just don't feel anything. I'm just floating with the birds. No, we, we live in the real world, and the real world is a nasty place sometimes. 
And, and uh, the knowledge of God is, is I believe, is, you know, is necessary and su- you know, sufficient to get us through these dark places. So let's, let's get to it. All right, very quickly. Uh, in the Bible, God's wisdom is seen in the creation and preservation of the world. Well, I read Psalm 104. That's basically what it's all about. It's an exposition of that, isn't it? Even though the world has been marred by sin, and if you're discerning, you can see that everywhere, in the sky, on the sea, in the land, in our towns and cities and provinces, states, country, in the world, um, there are still many evidences of God's wisdom. We think of the, you know, say the rotation of the earth, the the water cycle, the seasons, uh, the uniqueness of the animal world, the birds, even, even the bugs, the insects. It's one reason why it's, you know, good for you once in a while to watch the National Geographic channel. I'm assuming you've got that down here or something like that. Uh, even though you've got to endure their evolutionary musings about time. Uh, I'm sometimes astounded at the numbers they throw out without, without even blushing. <laughs> how sure they all sound and how all the numbers differ depending on what show you're listening to and what expert it is. But they're just off by a couple of billion years, so what does it matter? <laughs> but but if you can if you can kinda kinda laugh like we've sort of taught our kids, well there they go again. There they go again. They're they're evading responsibility and accountability. They know that that if there's a God they've got to stand before him one day and why they prefer the impersonal to the personal. So well we'll just we understand. We'll pray for them. But now, once we've got that out of the way, it is amazing what is out there in the natural realm. As a matter of fact, it's so amazing that you can't watch those things as a Christian without thinking, why, they, why can't other people see this? Uh, have you ever heard of the TED Talks? It stands for Technology, Entertainment, I think, Design. It's kind of a nerdy podcast that I listen to. Uh, nerdy in the sense that it's people like from Google and Apple and, and um, you know, all sorts of kind of think tanks. They, they, they have these talks in various places around the world and they'll bring experts together and the talks are usually between 10 and 20 minutes, so they're not that long. And uh, you, 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 if you Google it, you can find it on the web quite easily on a whole array of topics. It's interesting. I just like to listen to them because they talk about all sorts of things that I wouldn't necessarily have access to if I, if I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't listening. Very secular. Rick Warren spoke uh, there and did a, f- a wonderful job, I thought, because it's a very hostile audience for someone like, for a Christian and, and someone like Rick Warren. And um, I, I must say, he, he stuck to his guns. He told him the truth. And, and uh, I thought, well, you know, good for you. That, that wouldn't have been easy. But so so it's, not a, it's not a place given to spiritual thoughts of any kind. But they, they had a fellow on there a few months back who has pioneered um, the photography of, the, uh, of a baby developing in a womb. In fact, the, 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 the advancements in the technology are, are so incredible that you can, almost from the point of fertilization, you can, you can watch the cell division and all the kinds of things that are going on. And, uh, and this guy played a little clip for them of uh, a time-lapse clip just trying to give them some, uh, some sense of the wonder of this. 
And he says at the beginning, I don't know where he comes from personally, but he says at the beginning something I've, I've never heard anybody else say in one of these TED Talks. He says, he says you know, I don't know where you're all coming from. And, um, you know, something to the fact I, you know, I don't want to you know, necessarily you know, get all religious on you. But he says, it's, it's awfully hard to watch what I'm going to show you without a sense of the divine. You doggone right it is. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. You bet. Because it is something. And he says, you know, we, we're watching this going on, but we, we still, for all that we know, we still don't really understand how this is possible. It's, it's like, well, it's a miracle this unfolds before your eyes. You know, in the, in the first, uh, in the hours and days after conception, watching all the stuff that's going on, the way, way things, uh, you know, divide and subdivide and organize, it's just, it's phenomenal. We look at that and go, huh? the wisdom of God. Greg Bonson, I think, said it well when he was alive. You don't want to follow Greg on his post-millennial theonomy, but he, he said that he could never be an evolutionist because he didn't have enough faith. <laughs> he says it's a lot easier for me to believe that a personal, all-powerful, all-wise God created the universe than the alternative. And I, I have to agree with him. <laughs> I really do. The wisdom of God seen in, in um, the world of animals, in the uniqueness of human beings made in the image of God, in, in the way our minds and our bodies function, in, in, in a language, human language, the ability to speak, human languages. It, it's, it's phenomenal when you really stop and look. We take these things for granted. The arts, you know, art, music, uh, writing, poetry. Yes, we're capable of all these things, but why? Well, because the Bible teaches us that, that, that we've been made fearfully and wonderfully made by God, made in His image. Made to reflect His glory. Made to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to delight in Him. Even in the way human societies are organized. I, I always think of this. I would love to go up in the space shuttle or something. I, I follow... Uh, astronaut Chris Hatfield, who's the Canadian um, up there on the space station now on Twitter. He's always, you know, posting pictures from the space station, and those are amazing. But I, I, I haven't had that kind of experience, but even when I'm flying on an airplane, you know, and you come into some metropolitan area, I'm always amazed at how organized it looks. Because when you're down on the ground, it doesn't look that organized, but when you're, when you're coming, you go, look, there is signs of intelligent life here. <laughs> that there's a rhyme and a reason to the system. You know, and, you know, it's the wisdom of God. Now, of course, I've been highlighting the positive things, haven't I? But you know as well as I do that if we look a little longer at the world, we see that there's another side. There's an ugly side. There's violence. There's bloodshed. There's terrorism. There's greed. There's selfishness. There's lust. There's poverty. There's disease. There's death. What about the wisdom of God in these circumstances? Well, as hard as it is for, for people to sometimes embrace this, the Bible tells us that this too is part of God's all-wise plan. Well, how do I know that? Well, because we're told that God, uh, you know, that everything is ordained by Him. 
You know, Ephesians 1, 11. He ordains all things after the counsel of his will. Well, who's the he that's doing the ordaining? Well, it's God. Well, what kind of God is he? Well, he's an all-wise God. He doesn't, he doesn't ignore his wisdom when he's ordaining all things. His, his wisdom is, is, is integral to who he is. So, so these things are ordained in wisdom. So, so then we're, 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 we've got this uncomfortable kind of conclusion that's almost forced upon us. Well, so, so all of this is an expression of God's wisdom? Well, yes, the Bible says that. The Bible, I think, indicates that, that the very origin of evil in the rebellion of a portion of the, of the angelic realm, and in the rebellion of, of Adam and of Eve, was under his control. And although I don't believe that God was directly involved, because I think the Bible forbids us to go there, God is never directly responsible for evil. God stands behind good and evil asymmetrically, directly behind good, indirectly behind evil. It was, it, was, it was Satan who in the beginning rebelled. Why did he rebel? I don't know. He rebelled. I, I think if you ask the question why, one of the best things I've seen on that is Grudem's kind of statement that, that you really can't answer the question. And, and that shouldn't surprise us because in a sense sin is irrational. Like, what was he thinking? How do you, how do you as a creator rebel, or a creature, rebel against a, a, an infinite creator? How are you going to get away with that? No, it doesn't seem that those two, those two um, misguided souls that were involved in that Boston Marathon bombing had much of a plan after the bombing. Not unless their plan was just to go in a blaze of glory. You kind of look at that and you go, what were they thinking about? Think you can just do something like that and you're going to blend into the crowd, really? But, you know, you go back to the, the murderer from the beginning. What was he thinking about? I don't know. But he sin. Did God know about the sin? Yeah. Did God ordain the sin? Yeah. The Bible says, yeah, he ordains all things. Who is this God who ordained that sin? Well, he's an all-wise God. So that means that, that his wisdom is displayed even in allowing that creature to rebel. And then the same thing basically extends to Adam and Eve. God made them upright. It's very good. They weren't biased towards evil. They were biased towards righteous. They were, they were put in the, the Garden of Eden, not to earn salvation by works, but I, ba I think basically to live by, you know, by grace through, uh, live by grace and, and express that in faith. That's what they were put there. God put them there, gave them everything to enjoy, said, this is what I want you to do. You know, do this, do that, and stay away from that tree. And had they done what God had told them to do, they would have been, I think, confirmed in righteousness. There seems to be some kind of probation that's going on there. Some kind of, you know, learning obedience, a, a kind of, a kind of perfection that involves testing, a maturity that, that was required. But they failed the test. Eve listens to the serpent. He encourages her to be a big girl and to make up her own mind. He's only God telling you what to do. You're a big girl, Eve, you know. He, God's trying to keep something from you. Don't let God do that. I mean, take a look at this fruit. It's good to eat, you know. You set yourself free. Evaluate uh, what I'm saying versus what God's saying, and you know, you know, may the best kind of man win. 
disaster. She gives some to her husband, and he seemingly knowingly eats because he's the federal head, because he's the representative of the race. He plunges the race into, into death, sin and death. Has God ordained it? Yes. Is he wise? Yes. Is this part of his all-wise plan? Yes. We are dealing with profound mysteries, though, so we say these things carefully. But I think we must say them. Yes, in the Bible, God's wisdom is seen in the creation and in the preservation of the world and even in the, the allowing of the angelic rebellion, human rebellion, and everything that has flowed out from it. Okay, in, secondly, in the Bible, uh, God's wisdom is seen uh, preeminently in, in Christ and in salvation. So I'm going to deal with that uh, second. And of course, this presupposes, you know, what I've just been talking about, the good creation, but then the fall into sin. And, you know, really, a lot could be said about this. I mean, this is where the wisdom of God is supremely seen, isn't it? In the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're, when we're doing our biblical theology and our systematic theology, this is what all we're doing is we're really thinking God's thoughts after him. And, and, and in some ways, and, and don't misunderstand me, it's a simple story. It's a simple story. We've gone astray. We've messed up. We have forfeited any right to a relationship with God. Uh, we, we deserve death. We deserve judgment. But God is gracious to us. God is merciful to us. And God has a way to bring us back into relationship with himself. That's basically the gospel message. And what is that way? It is in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's simple. And so we talk about the simple gospel. But at another level, it's oh, anything but simple. Who is God? Well, he's superlatively holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Who are we? We're unclean, people of unclean lips who dwell in the midst of others of unclean lips. Oh, that's what we are, to say the very least. How can this God bring us into relationship with himself? Why would he even want to? Well, it's according to his good pleasure and his will. This is for his glory. It, it, it glorifies God to, to save sinners. And it glorifies God to leave other people in their sins and to give them the wicked desires of their hearts. Well, these are very profound truths. God chose to save. Now, in systematics, there's a kind of old discussion that goes way back to the you know the early days of the of the Christian Church. Was the sending of Jesus into the world one option among many that were available to God? This is a position that was was held early on, very very early on. So so God has chosen to save us in Christ. Uh, this is what He has done, and and uh, and so. That's the way it's going to be. But God could have done it another way. He's chosen not to. He's chosen to do it this way. But then it wasn't very long before people started to say, no, that, 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 the biblical data, there's more said about this than, than you might first think. It's not that Jesus was just one option among many. And so there's this view called the consequent absolute necessity view, which just merely means God didn't have to save anybody. 
But when God chose to save, when he set his love upon a, a people who were, who were undeserving, but he set his love upon them and he said, I'm going to save them. When he did that, there was only one option open to him, so to speak. There was only one way it could be done, and that was the death of his son. Why is that? Such is the nature of his holiness, and such is the, are the complicating factors uh, of, uh, that come about as a result of our sin, that there was only one way for God to bring us together, and this was in the God-man, Christ Jesus. What a demonstration of wisdom he is. Oh, yeah, profound demonstration. Glorious demonstration that we'll never get over. The Holy Spirit should overshadow Virgin Mary. Overshadowing that harkens back to the early verses of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit hovers, broods over the waters. Here the Spirit overshadows Mary. So that what is formed in her is unique. By what is formed in her is the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, taking to himself a human body, a human mind human soul, all, the, all of our humanity, taking it to himself, taking it to himself forever. Why? Because this is what is necessary. This is, this is the only way that, that the, the breach of sin can be, can be resolved. Now, there was no provision made for the angelic realm. They, they are held in, in chains of darkness for the day of judgment. And, and probably, I don't know how many of them would have fallen if, if it weren't for the fact that the Bible speaks about elect angels. And so, so you have an indication that, that, that even in that realm, the election of God is active, that, that God uh, says, I will allow so many to fall, but no more, I will keep the rest. But oh, with regards to human beings, God has provided salvation for a race that has fallen. It's not as though he kept some of us from falling. No, we all fell. But God has, has found a way, and I don't mean by found, that he, he had to search this out and you know, do some calculations and figure out how he might do it. But God had a way. He, he, he knew what, what, what he would do. You see, I think he, he, he knew what he would do all along because he's all-knowing, he's all-wise. He knows himself through and through. He knows all the demands of his holiness and his justice. He knows all the implications of human sin and rebellion. He knew what he would have to do. And what was that? He would come to rescue us in the person of his son. That's the mystery of it all, the glory of it all. But he should, though rich, for our sakes become poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. And the Bible speaks about God's wisdom, it speaks about salvation being something that, God's wisdom in Christ, it speaks about salvation being something that confounded the angels, First Peter chapter 1 verse 12 the angels look into these things what's going on what is God doing what is God doing um, God's salvation I think uh, the, the, the wisdom of God in salvation uh, is, is spoken about by the apostle Paul in a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 24 and 25 where he speaks about Christ being the power of God and the wisdom of God and then he says the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And, 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 and then Paul tells us that, that God is so wise that even mankind's refusal to see his wisdom in Christ is part of his all-wise plan to make foolish the wisdom of the world in order that no one may boast. I don't know if you follow that. 
But that's just Ephesians, you know, chapter 3. Isn't it? Think of all that. So God's so wise. <laughs> but it doesn't appear like that to human beings. They think this is bizarre. You know? Uh, to the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. Even to people today. I, you know, I heard recently a, a person say, I don't need a, a man to die for me. That's ridiculous. That's offensive to me. I'll stand on my own uh, two feet. I'll stand on my own merits. I don't need a Christ or anybody else to die for me. Oh, yes, you fool. We'll see if you sing that tune when you, when you stand in the presence of the Almighty. No. Not a word will escape from your lips. So I say... God's wisdom is seen in the creation, in the providence, in providence, in the fall, supremely seen in Christ. I, you know, I haven't had time to talk about how it's worked out in, in God's purpose in Christ to bring together Jew and Gentile, you know, to, 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 uh, to bring together a, a new man, you know, the wisdom of God that's, that's, uh, that's proclaimed to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms in the church. I mean, there's, there's, this is a rich theme. How that in Christ all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. But we, we, I want to go on to this third thing. Uh, the Bible speaks about God's wisdom being seen in the lives of his people. Now we've already heard about um, Abraham. We've heard some things about Abraham's life. How God directed him. Isaac. Jacob. Well, God, God was very wise in dealing with Jacob. Jacob was a rascal. Of course, so was Abraham. You know, the man of faith. Man of faith married to a woman who, who laughed her head off at the promise of God because she knew her husband. Uh, and yet, the wisdom of God worked itself out in Abraham's life, Isaac's life, Jacob's life. Joseph. Oh, no, there's an interesting case. Joseph. Joseph... Um, cocky in his younger days, younger years, um, maybe a little proud, a little arrogant, annoyed his brothers. You know how younger brothers can, can annoy older brothers? You have to have brothers to kind of know that. Of course, I'm an older brother. I'm the, I'm the oldest of four. Steve's the youngest. <laughs> of course, he was never annoying. He was always an angel. I was the worst of the bunch. <laughs> um, but, you know, Joseph's like that. And, and and he's, you know, he's sold into slavery. And, and, and he does well in, in, in the land of uh, Egypt. And then he's falsely accused and he's put in jail. You know the story, how he eventually becomes prime minister of the land. And, and you know, there are many times through that story which there doesn't seem to be a lot of wisdom, at least if you're in Joseph's shoes or sandals. But, but we know that there was wisdom guiding Joseph's life every step of the way that God had sent him there in advance to, to, to be there for that critical moment when, when uh, his family which contained the promise was in danger and we could talk about Moses oh Moses I feel for Moses his life can be divided into you know three segments of 40 years 40 years he was in the public education system of Egypt Just mentioning that. Like Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
40 years he was in seminary. He was looking after sheep on the backside of the desert. <laughs> That's excellent preparation for pastoral ministry, you realize. Dealing with his, uh, you know, his wife, his family, his father-in-law, and everything. And then at, at, at 80, when he should have been retiring, the Lord says, okay, you're ready for the, the ultimate test. You're going to take... You're going to take these people and you're going to lead them to the promised land. Right? But, but there's wisdom in all of that. There's wisdom in God's preparation of Moses. And, and, and there was wisdom that guided Moses all the way through that, that trying experience. And it, it, it had its ups and downs, to say the least. And, and we could talk about... Um, uh, you know, we could talk about Joshua. We could talk about the children of, of Israel. I'm kind of doing a series in the churches I go around preaching on, on weekends on David. You know, people often think, well, you know, David had that problem with Bathsheba, but other than that, you know, he was a pretty good king. Eh, take a good look at the biblical passages. David had lots of problems. You know, this is one of the things that's kind of interesting, is that when you read the Psalms and you see the, the amazing insight of someone like David into the plan of God, and we've been looking at this week, you have to appreciate the fact that, this, that you know, there's a there's the involvement of the Holy Spirit because when you look at the narrative and then you look at the sort of the theological works that he produces, sometimes you think, is this the same guy? You know, is this the guy that, you know, that, that goes around lying about what he's doing? Is this the guy that has to feign insanity so that saliva runs down his beard? You know, is, is, this, the, is this the fellow who says, strap on your swords to his men and, and, and comes after Nabal? He says, you know, he's going to destroy every male in his household because, you know, because he's, he's snubbed David. If it wasn't for the intervention of a woman, Abigail, who's a little more theologically precise than David is at the moment, certainly more in control of herself, uh, that would have been, you know, a black mark on another black mark on David's record. And yet, in and through it all, what's going on? Well, God's working with David. He's preparing David. He's He's, uh, I, I think I mentioned this on Sunday, there's a sense in which David is learning obedience through the things that he suffers. He, he, he typifies a greater David to come, and, and so he doesn't immediately come to the throne of Israel. There is a, this, this period of, of suffering and pursuit by Saul, and, and he will come to Israel's throne in God's time. Talk about Daniel, we could talk about Jonah. See, uh, the, the thing is that that we all have struggles, we all have disappointments. And, and if we're honest, we all have trouble sometimes believing that our course is a course charted by wisdom. I'm sure if we had time, we could have, we could have a testimony meeting here. We could have one person have another come up to the mic and, 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 and kind of say, you know, this has happened to me or that's happened to me. And it was hard. I didn't know what God was doing. And, and there may be people here tonight who have had things happen and you still don't know what God is doing. Why did you make me like this? You might say. Why, why did I grow up in this family? Or why did this happen to me? Or, Lord, I just don't understand. And the Bible comes to us and says, listen, God is in control of all things, and he is wise. He is all wise. And his wisdom just doesn't you know, apply to the macro level. It applies to the micro level, the individual, the personal level. You are who you are, and everything that has happened to you, for whatever reason, and there's all sorts, I'm not minimizing human responsibility and all those things, for every, ultimately, though, everything that's happened to you is because that is the way God has ordained it, and 
if you're a child of God, it is because that's what's best for you. That's what's best for you. That's why, that's why our ways are all different. That's why we're supposed to run with patience, a race marked out for us, which I, I think indicates that, you know, they're not all the same. They're basically the same. We're going in the same direction, but there's all sorts of different paths because God has different ways in which we will glorify Him. Now, what, is this, what, what response does this call from us? It, recall, it, it calls for a response of faith. We've got to say, Lord, I don't necessarily see it. I may not see it at all. But I trust you. I surrender myself to you. You know what you're doing. Just, you know, be gentle with me. Be patient with me. And lead me. Each step of the way. Show me. You know, if you've got things to teach me, teach me and teach me quickly. <laughs> you know? Whatever it is you're doing, Lord, do it. I think that should be our prayer. And as I said at the beginning, I don't think there's any problem with, with going to God and saying, I don't understand. This hurts. I'm hurting. I'm anxious. I'm fearful. Lord, I, you, you seem to put me in a situation where if I go this way, I, I have trouble. If I go that way, I have trouble. I don't know what to do. Or, or you brought some loss into my life. Or, or I, I, I find my circumstances overwhelming. God says, listen, don't lose sight of who I am. I am the all-wise God. And if you're in danger of doing that, then go and look at the lives of the biblical characters. You see what I've done in their lives and realize that what's going on there is also going on with you. And if you're still having trouble with that, then remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that he's the ultimate expression of my wisdom. And remember that when all things are wrapped up in him and you have the perspective of the end, you'll be able to say, ah, hallelujah, you've done all things well. See, that's what we have to remember. This is, a, this is practical eschatology. Right? See, we live by faith, not by sight. We believe that one day we will see him as he is. And, 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 and in that day, we may not have all of our questions answered immediately. I don't even know if, if some of those mysteries will ever, that we're even able to comprehend them. But we will see better than we can today. You know, just in my own personal experience, just very quickly. You know, I... I, I, I went to Bible school largely just to get some Bible instruction, really intending to go and do, um, eventually apply to law school and be a lawyer. You know, about halfway through Bible school, and you know, it was, it was apparent that I wasn't going to go that way. I was more interested in, in studying the Bible and so forth. And when I, when I graduated out of Bible school, I was accepted to go to uh, seminary, Westminster Seminary, actually, in Philadelphia. But one thing led to another, and, and almost without intending to, which, which may sound very strange, but without intending to, I found myself the pastor of a church. <laughs> I went there to speak for pulpit supply, and um, the deacons talked to me after the morning service and said, um, we'd like to meet with you in the afternoon. And, and then, you know, they, they said, well, we'd like you to consider becoming the pastor of the church. I've never been there before in my life. They'd never laid eyes on me before, and I'd never laid eyes on them. And of course, I was foolish enough to not Let's put the brakes on that. Next thing you know, I was the pastor of the church. Um, but there's a lot of things I didn't, I didn't know. I was young. I didn't know a lot of things. I mean, even if you're old, you still don't know a lot of things. As a matter of fact, when you're older, you realize you don't know anything. When you're younger, you think you know some things. Right? <laughs> now I know I don't know anything. <laughs> but, but back then, I, I, at least I knew some things. But I didn't know. For instance, I'd never, been to, I'd never done a funeral before. And, and I was there a few weeks and someone died. 
And I remember going to the Christian bookstore and looking for books on funerals. And I remember the funeral director in town who was a soul to the mayor of the town, a small town. He felt kind of sore for me. You know, what's a young guy like you doing up in that crazy church, you know? So he kind of helped me piece together a funeral. And uh, over the next um, two years, I had 10 funerals, all different kinds of circumstances. And what was the Lord doing? Well, he said, you know, Kirk, you, you didn't take pastoral theology when you were in Bible school. You thought you were going to be a lawyer, so you took all these arts courses. Yeah, you're good at Greek and theology, but you don't have anything, you know, you don't know anything about kind of real life, so we're going to put you in funerals 101. <laughs> and that's what he did. Right? Now, at the time, I was going like, this is... You know, you, you hate to see the phone ring after a while because <laughs> you think, what's next? No. And then, you know, into another church planning situation. We've been meeting in a school for three years. Uh, we just moved, we just purchased a building that we were, you know, going to move into. And um, my five-month-old daughter is diagnosed with cancer. Neuroblastoma, stage four. And, you know, spend, you know, the family spends the next almost year uh, in the ho in hospital, going back from the hospital, getting chemotherapy, and eventually surgery, radiation. Now, God was very gracious to us. Uh, she's pretty survived. In fact, I'm a grandfather as of last August, and, and she's the mother of that child, her and her husband. I uh, have a beautiful little baby girl. But I can, I can remember those days and thinking to myself, what are, what are you doing, God? I mean, this is annoying. I mean, we just, we've gone out on a limb to get this church going. We've just got this building. There's so much to be done. I can't afford to be, you know, down here. I, I, this, is, this is just not working out very well. But you see, he said, no, you, you need, you, you've got some lessons to learn about hospital visitation. You know, you need to learn to sit in there for a while. You need to learn to see what people are going through. You know, you, 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 know, you know it all. You're the theologue. Yeah, but you don't know anything. You sit. You sit and you watch. You sit and you learn. You sit and you cry. Yeah. Those are just two things. Those are just two things. Now, now I'm at TBS. I never really planned to be at TBS. I didn't plan to be the principal of the thing. My teachers in high school knew I was the principal of the Baptist Seminary. <laughs> they would laugh. <laughs> uh, never my intention. No, never a goal. I was never, I never up there, you know, this is what I'm going to be when I grow up. No, never. But um, the, the Lord takes you through these twists and turns. And that's just my, you know, stuff at a certain very superficial level. And I know you've got lots of things too. Now, you know, I said the wisdom of God is communicable, and, and I, I just want to end with this. It's a communicable attribute in one sense, in that God shares his wisdom with people like you and I, and that's a wonderful thing because we need wisdom. But the scripture says if we lack it, what we need to do is we need to go to him and we need to ask for it. And, and we need to do that, you know, more often than we do because we need more wisdom than we have. And we need to ask God. And, and the wonderful thing is that the Bible says he gives it to us liberally. Because he knows we need a lot of it. And so when he comes, when we come to him, he delights to give us uh, the wisdom that we need. And so if we're struggling, even with what's going on in our own lives, say, Lord, help me to get your perspective on things. Help me to see what it is you're doing. 
And then, if he does give us any wisdom, there's no room for pride and there's no room for arrogance. In fact, we should be marked by humility and a gentle and peaceful spirit because we know full well it's, it's come from, from him. And then, remember what I said, it's a communicable attribute, but in a sense it's not. There will always be a sense in which at some level we will say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And so, you know, there, we, we will always to the end of our days and even in the new heavens and new earth, our relationship with God will be, you know, will be one of faith to us. I know there'll be the fulfillment of our dreams then, but, but even there, you know, we, we walk with God, we trust in God, we delight in God, we, we, we embrace all that He is to us. And so all I'm saying is that whatever you're struggling with tonight, wherever you are, just remember that the Bible says that God is all wise. And, and you need to believe that, you need to hold on to that, and you need to move forward in trust. The last word goes to the book of uh, Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Okay, uh, I was asked to, to leave it um, there, and if there are any questions, we can um, you know, entertain those for a few minutes anyway. I haven't, ri I haven't written this to you. Okay, the, the question was, I, I mentioned, um, I think in the session this afternoon, that... Um, you know, I got an email from a student who's involved in uh, doing field work in a, in a church, and there's a lady in the congregation who has a gay son who's going to be married, and she, you know, wanted to know, you know she's trying to sort out whether or not you go to the, uh, whether she should attend, even though she obviously disapproves of the whole thing. I, I, when, when the question came in, I was sitting with um, Pastor David Robinson, who's going to be speaking tomorrow morning, and uh, Fred Zaspel, who's left. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I can tell you I'll, give you, I'll give you sort of the, what different men said. I don't think Fred would mind, nor David. Um, Fred said he wouldn't go, but he, he said I wouldn't legislate that. I, I wouldn't say that uh, that's the only appropriate response. He said he personally wouldn't go, but um, that was a personal decision. Uh, David, I, and I hope I don't misremember but David I, I indicated that he would go, uh, as difficult as it would be, uh, wanting to um, you know, maintain a relationship with the son and kind of thinking about the, the the, the, the bigger picture and the sort of what's going to unfold down the road, wanting to, to at least uh, indicate that although I disapprove of what you're doing, um, you know, you're still my son and um, I still want to have a relationship with you in the future. And personally, uh, I, I would, I would uh, tend to take the same position. It, a lot would depend on the circumstances. Uh, I don't know if I would... You know, I don't know if I'd stay for I don't know. You'd have to... I'm not sure. I mean, I've never been confronted with that. But, but I think I would say to him that... Uh, what I would tell the lady is, listen, it's... A, it's um, I, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think you've got to sort that out before the Lord. I do... I personally think as a general rule with regards to children, whether it was that issue or any other issue, that even though they may, uh, you know, defy the rules of the home and then they grow up and they may reject our faith or whatever, that 
that we should try to love them and maintain contact with them. I don't see that much is gained by just cutting people off. I've seen that done before, but it's not usually not very productive. And, and I've also seen people that have tried to remain in, uh, in a t you know, having a, a relationship, able to talk, leave the lines of communication open, and that doesn't necessarily always work out either. But I, 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 um, I do think that we're called upon to, you know, love even our enemies. And, you know, clearly if you've got people that are, uh, you know, they're doing things that are completely contrary to what we believe is right, uh, you know, we have to decide how it is we're going to um, protest their, the wrongness of their actions, but also uh, demonstrate some kind of concern for them. So that's, that's what I would do right there wrongly. So.